There's one way we guitarists tend to be in denial, if not complete and all-out fantasy land, it's got to be gear safety. Now, sure, most of us buy decent gig bags and hefty pedal board cases, but I'm not talking about no-brainer stuff like that. I'm talking big picture. Protecting our rigs from things outside our control, whether it's, I don't know, dirt bags out and about in the world or natural disasters. If we were honest, most of us would admit our lax attitude about protecting our gear is as much about laziness and gear lust as it is a sort of warped gambler's mentality. Hardly any of us get adequate renters or homeowners insurance because A, updating your policy every time you get a new toy is a pain, and B, for the price of that premium you could get a couple more pedals. So we spend untold hours researching new gear and lie awake at night lusting after it, but when we get it we give hardly any thought to how to protect it. We'll drive home from rehearsal and leave our stuff in plain sight while we run an errand or go for a beer or whatever. It's pretty ridiculous if you think about it. Now, a lot of us have somehow managed to dodge a bullet with major gear disasters over the years, but it's a game of chicken that gets increasingly dodgy as you get older, increase your spending power, and amass more and nicer gear. But when you hear from people who've lost a special axe or a one-of-a-kind amp, the stories are just brutal. I mean, not lose your house in a flood brutal, but still, you know how we get with our gear. What's even more mind-boggling, though, is when you hear about gear tragedies that somehow turned kind of awesome. What could be more statistically improbable than that, right? Here at Conversations in the Key of Life, we recently heard from two players whose gear loss stories are as likely to drop your jaw in sympathy as they are to restore a little bit of your faith in humanity. Our first story comes to us from Caleb Keeter from Belton, Texas. For the past six years, Caleb's been playing full-time in a country outfit called the Josh Abbott Band, and his story takes place in 2013, when he came home to a nasty surprise after several weeks on the road. It was about three years ago, I want to say it was probably 2013. I had been out on the road for probably a good six-week run, and I just hadn't been home. We'd just been really busy. So I come home, you know, and uh, open up my apartment, and the front door was locked, but the patio door uh, had been broken into. And I just, I open up the door to my apartment and walk in. I mean, I'd just been ransacked. Oh, man. Not only had they stolen everything from me, uh, they, you know, I mean, they trashed the place. I walk in, you know, my TV's gone, my MacBook's gone, but what really hurt was the gear. Uh, they, got a, they got a Les Paul from me. I don't remember what year that one was, but it, I think it was like a 94 or something. Les Paul, and then they had a, a 65 amp Monterey. I had a Gibson, I think it's the RVST2 or something. They uh, got that combo amp, probably 10, 15 pedals, you know, uh, and then my acoustic, uh, which Venture, it was ones that my brothers had had that I learned on. So that one, that's, that one wasn't necessarily expensive. It was a cheap guitar, but it just, you know, it had some sentimental value. God, so you walk, you come back from tour, you open the front door, and was it the, there's like a sliding glass door that was shattered or whatever? Or Yeah, like a patio door, and I guess they had just pried it open. Yeah. <sighs> How long did it take to realize all your precious guitar gear was gone? It took like a few minutes for it to sink in. I don't really, I couldn't really, I, could, I just could wrap my head around it. I mean, the, the apartment had been filled so full of stuff. I don't know how they got it out of there without anybody seeing them. <sighs> they had to have made several trips. 
or, you know, and there, there had to have been at least three or four people. And none of this stuff is like, it's not like light gear. I mean, it's that the 65 amp Monterey is a two twelve combo. Right. It's pretty heavy. So, uh, so what did you do, man? I mean, sit down and cry. <laughs> I called the police and, you know, filed the report and then I had to file a claim with my renter's insurance. And I was lucky enough that the renter's insurance did cover it. So I know I got, I got my check for it, but I, I would have rather just had the gear. And they just covered everything. Yeah. I mean, they, they, uh, I, they got a quote on how much everything was worth today and then they sent me a check. So I got paid for that. Now, had you listed all of your, your gear? Cause a lot of us, I admit myself included are not, haven't been as diligent as we should have by, you know, making sure insurance companies know every little piece of gear that you've got. Had you, had you done that or did they just take you at your word for what you said you had? Well, they just took me at my word for it, which, wow. was, which was shocking. But I did have serial numbers um, for a lot of the stuff, probably most of it, because we have a separate insurance policy for gear that we have out on the road. Okay. Once every six months or so, you know how guitarists are, we're always getting new toys and messing with stuff. So, you know, once every six months, we sort of go back through it, go back through the, the guitar vault and everything. And sort of get figure out what's new and what we need to add to the insurance. Okay, so you knew the serial numbers because of the band's road insurance policy, but that's not the policy that covered it. Right. Yeah, the, my renter's insurance is what actually covered it. Wow, that's pretty. I'm tempted to ask what insurance company it was because I doubt many of them would just take your word at what was taken. Oh, uh, it was a, it was American Modern. Huh. It was a like some sort of subsidiary of just e-renters. Huh. I think is what it was. So yeah, and they're fantastic. I, I highly recommend them because because I got broken into again three months later, and they did oh, it again. Like same way? They're, like, do you think it was the same people? Or I mean, it, it had to have been. I, I would imagine, but they this time they kicked the, the door in, the front door in. Jeez. So, and I mean, they they had just ransacked. They they had robbed like four or five apartments that were on that side of the street. Oh, man. So I don't know. I just, I, it just blew my mind that they had enough time to go do that. But I mean, when they hit me again, they got, I think they got another little amp and some more pedals. I mean, I, I didn't have, I, they got my TV and stuff again, of course, but I didn't have as much stuff because I hadn't even had time to sort of replenish, you know. Because you were going back out on the road and. Yeah. And did you have your road gear for the band stored somewhere else so that you we're still stocked okay for your gigs? Yeah, there's stuff that I just, it always stays on the bus Yeah, that I have. I mean, you know, I've got two guitars minimum, and then I've got, you know, one guitar cab and then two heads that just always stay out there in my pedal board. So in a sense, it was, because uh, a, a lot of guys I've talked to who've had this happen, you know, they have to kind of scramble to get new gears oh, yeah. to you know, do next week's gig or whatever, but you were, it's kind of a, I guess you're kind of lucky in a sense that you had not put all the time and effort into replacing all that stuff. Cause yeah, I'm actually, I, I'm actually definitely very lucky because you know, a lot of guys, I mean, you know, there's a lot of touring guys out there that they don't, they're not lucky enough to have a bus with a trailer and you know, where they can oh, yeah. sit here and keep it safe. Gosh. So I was, I was very lucky in that sense. I mean, if, if I had been, if I had had to go to a gig, you know, and load in and out myself and then bring the stuff back home, it would have all been gone. But still, that's, man, it had to be in, infuriating the first time, but especially the second time. Like, did you paint the picture for us? Like, what, did you come home uh, one night and your front door is just hanging open? 
yeah, I came home. It's probably about three or four in the morning, and I walk up, and my door is just wide open. God. Now, was the you were renting, but was it a house or like a complex? It was a, it was an apartment complex. Yeah, I don't see how yeah. anyone could hear that and do something. Jeez, these guys were brazen. I mean, they even the lady upstairs from me actually some they took a mattress. And <laughs> And then they crawled up the mattress to the to the next story of apartments to rob this lady. Oh my god! I was laughing just because I thought you were saying like it seems pretty unusual for me to yeah. someone want to steal a mattress, but they didn't steal it. They were just using it as a ladder. Yeah, as a ladder. Oh my god! Up to another lady's. I mean, the balls of these guys. It was crazy. So back to the second time you come home, three four a.m. Doors hanging wide open, and what's going through your mind? Uh, I was just just absolute rage. Because this time I didn't take any time to process. I just knew. You're just like, are you fucking kidding me again? <laughs> Pardon my language. <laughs> That's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding me. I think they got like another little amp. I, my Martin acoustic was actually there, but I, I put it under the bed. And so they managed to miss that. But they got some more pedals. I think they got a couple microphones. The worst kind of asshole to me is the guy that steals from a musician. Because if you're stealing from a musician, the chances are that guy's already broke anyways. Yeah. So you're, you're stealing from the poorest guy on the planet or girl, you know? Yeah. So I, yeah, that kind of stuff just enrages me. What was the amp that was stolen the second time? It was just a little Fender Deluxe. Uh-huh. That's what it was. Like a, like a new one or? Yeah, like one of the new ones. It wasn't any, like, you know, like a vintage. Reissued Deluxe Reverb. Yeah. Still, that's it's still like a thousand bucks. Yeah, it's still, yeah, it's still, you know, a piece of gear that I could have used to gig around town or something if I, you know, if I wanted to pick up some work on the side. So what happened after that? Well, I mean, I, I had like another, it was just like another month on my lease and I was, I was out on the road or maybe a couple, but I was out on the road so much. It didn't even make sense to move and put a deposit down in a new place. Cause I was literally only going to be home for like a week or two. Mm-hmm. So, so I just figured, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to ride it out. I'm not buying anything else new and leaving it. I'm just going to leave this apartment here. And then I would go stay, you know, whenever I got home, I think I stayed at my friend's house back home for like three or four days and then I crashed on, I think, my drummer's couch for a couple days. Just mm-hmm. It just wasn't worth it. And then after the lease went up, I, I got the few things I had left, you know, like some dishes and my couch and bed, and then just moved, moved down to Austin. Now, if I understand right, though, a little while later, you got a call. I, I can't thank this guy enough. The, uh, Nathan at Fort Worth Guitar Center. I had bought both of my amps at Guitar Center. The Gibson and the 65 uh, Monterey. This guy came in and tried to sell both of them, but they were both in their guitar center system because I bought them. And so naturally they call, you know, they put a police hold on everything and they called me and they said, yeah, we just wanted to check and make sure that these were your amps. And uh, I was like, yeah, they were stolen from me, you know, three years ago. So they, they, I guess, told the guy that they had some paperwork to do and kept, kept him busy for a while. And then the cops showed up and uh, took him, took him to jail. And I got my stuff back. I got, I got my two amps back. I didn't get my guitars and stuff. But Oh, that's some... There's got to be some catharsis in that, even though you didn't get all your stuff back. Like, knowing this yeah. asshole, probably just one of the assholes, but he got arrested? Yeah, from what I understand, they, they took him in that day, and uh, he had said that somebody just gave him the amps, which is, I mean... Yeah, I'm sure. Bullshit. Who gives you... Can people risk jail time yeah. to, to bust into multiple apartments and then they just give the stuff away makes a lot of sense 
it's not cheap gear, you know. An Amp Monterey, I think, brand new, went for like twenty five hundred bucks or something back then. Yeah, these aren't Robin Hood thieves who are just like, we're gonna steal all this nice gear and then give it away to people who deserve it more. <laughs> yeah. Well, good on the. You said Nathan at the Fort Worth Guitar Center. Yep. Good on those guys for following policy because absolutely, you know, it's easy to not follow policy, especially when you know. There's money to be made. You can easily easily not follow protocol and go like, sweet, we got another amp I can make some commission on or whatever. Right. Well, I mean, that's the and that's the thing is, you know, I, I got a lot of buddies that rip on Guitar Center. And, you know, I, I've been guilty of it, too, just because it's the big corporation and, you know, that whole thing. But, I mean, they've got some really good policies there. And, I mean, they really saved my ass. Yeah. I'm lucky to be doing pretty well financially. Mm-hmm. But if this had been, you know, a few years before, whatever, I was broke. Um, and somebody stole my gear, that kind of policy can get me my stuff back so I can get back to work. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, yeah, it was clear that these guys didn't even know what they had because, I mean, the road cases looked like they'd never even been opened. I mean, like, the, so I was lucky everything was in perfect condition. Um, but, the, yeah, I mean, the police had, they, whenever it initially happened, you know, they told me, well, we think it might be, a, it was a ring of guys because there were a lot of burglaries going on around that time. So they were going to interrogate him on that and try to find who the other guys were. Um, but I have not heard anything since. So I'm not totally sure what actually happened with it. Well, at least you got a couple of amps back and a little bit of vicarious revenge on one of the guys. Yeah, that's, and that's well, and more, and more importantly, you know, he can't do it to somebody else now. Thank you for sharing your story, Caleb. Absolutely, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the interview. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Smart thinking with, you know, keeping track of your serial numbers and having insurance and all that because it's easy, especially when you're like, oh, dude, for the price of monthly premium or six-month premium, I could have another amp or a couple pedals or whatever. But it's, uh, it's, if there's anything you can ever stress to your readers at all, it's seriously get, get the insurance and write your stuff down because it does pay off. Yeah. If you think it can't happen to you, you're wrong. All right, man. Thanks again, and have a great one. All right, you too, Lee. Take care. Bye. Bye. Our last story today comes to us from Joel Danzig, co-founder of Hamer Guitars, author of Premier Guitars' Esoterica Electrica column, and prime mover behind Joel Danzig Guitar Design. Joel's story of gear agony and redemption takes place circa 1975 when he was bassist in a band playing the same circuit as future legends Cheap Trick. I had been playing in a band with, uh, with a Rickenbacker bass. I had moved on from an EB3 and Marshall amps to uh, Rickenbacker and uh, acoustic amps. And... I wanted something different. I wanted something that uh, nobody else had. And I owned a, a vintage guitar shop with Paul Hamer. And, you know, we were steeped in the, in the old 50s Fenders and Gibsons. And we were, I was a big fan of the Flying Vs. I had a 1959 Flying V that I loved. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a bass flying V and nobody made one. Gibson didn't make one. And I'm sure there were some other people who had fashioned one, but, uh, I wasn't aware of that. And, uh, with the help of one of our repair guys, John Montgomery, I made this flying V bass. We used all the, uh, Gibson EB three and EBO parts. And, uh, so it had the big humbuckers. 
Well, it had that big EBO pickup at the neck, and uh, it had like a little mini humbucker uh, at the bridge position. So we used all that hardware, but uh, at the neck position, I put a, a real patent applied for guitar humbucking into it. Huh. And uh, because what I wanted to do is make it look like a guitar. I mean, some, somehow in my twisted mind, young mind, I, I thought, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if it didn't look like a bass and looked like a guitar and people would come to the gig and look at the band and go, where's the bass player? I don't get it. <laughs> but of course, you know, no, nobody in the audience cared about the guitar, really. But, uh, you know, maybe three guitar players. I'm sure they did. I haven't seen a picture of the bass, but I'm dying to, so hopefully I can later. But was it Karina Wood, like the... Well, here, here was my... Here was my concept for the thing. I, I wanted it to look like if a, a flying V and a Les Paul custom had a baby. <laughs> so what I did is it was black. It was black. It was a mahogany base and it was uh, black. And I put the multi-stripe black and white binding all the way around it mm -hmm. on the headstock and on the body. And uh, it had a white pick guard and the black humbucking surrounds and... It used the, the Gibson bass. It's like a, almost like a rap tail bridge for bass. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it just was on uh, those same posts that they used on a wraparound bridge. So no intonation, no individually intonatable saddles or anything? No, no. It was just, just like a bar. Yeah. And I drilled a hole in it, and I mounted one of those SG Vibrola arms, you know, the ones with the, <laughs> the white nylon handle on it. Oh, that's awesome. And, and I just socked it down on there. And uh, because the, those bridges were so terrible, they, they rocked. So I could actually wiggle the arm and make it vi do a little vibrato. But that kind of completed the whole Gibson <laughs> Flying V look. And the, and the Flying Vs, I guess, from the 60s had that. Uh, had that vibrato on it as well. So now, now, when you say you socked the vibrato down, are you saying you just put it on there, or did you like do have to do extra stuff to it to make sure it didn't go out of tune? Or well, of course, it was going to go out of tune, but to try and beef it up for handling the extra tension of bass strings. No, I just I drilled a hole in the bridge for the arm. It was, oh, you just it, put the arm it, on. It was a prop. It was just like, you know, it was fake, you know, which, which kind of, you know, that was, uh, you know, foreshadowing some of the crazy stuff that we did with Hamer, of gotcha. course, like all the Rick Nielsen stuff. You know, they're stage props. So literally just the handle from the, the vibrola. Oh, yeah. And, but interestingly enough, you could wiggle it a little bit and get a little bit of vibrato. So, you know, that was good for show. What kind of stuff were you playing in this band where you had originally been playing the Rickenbacker and stuff? Well, you know, uh, kind of vacillated between, uh, you know, it was a whole whole procession of crappy bands that <laughs> I was in. So, some of which did, you know, we did a lot of covers and some originals and that sort of thing. It was just learning how to write songs. And, you know, we went through that whole fusion thing where, you know, there's six parts and you change tempos and... You know, it, you know, things that people hated to listen to in a club. <laughs> so this was early 70s, I think you said, right? Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we started in uh, 1971 or so, you know, through a whole different, you know, bunch of bands. Just, you know. So were you like fans of 
Yes, and Chris Squire and all that with the since you've kind of mentioned the Rickenbacker and Prague-ish stuff. So. I wasn't a big Yes fan, but I love Chris Squire's tone. And, and mm-hmm. you know, when, when those records came out, of course, you know, every bass player had to get a, a Rickenbacker bass. So that was part of it. Before that, it was a Jack Bruce thing. I played an EB3 through 200-watt Marshall stacks. <laughs> Man, where did you guys practice and get away with that? Well... Uh, you know, I had this industrial loft that I, I lived in. It was above a print shop in Highland Park, Illinois. And, uh, you know, we, I, I ran a, uh, a sound system rental company. And we would do sound for bands and rent out the gear. So I had all these cabinets and mixers and power amps and microphones. And I needed a place to store them and an office so I rented this uh, industrial space, and I wound up moving in there with the guitarist in my band. And, uh, you know, so we were, you know, it's it so cliche, you know, we're living <laughs> at the Shag Rug and the Bose 901 speakers powered by a Crown amp, and, you know, it's just... But it's cliche in an awesome way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it was kind of awesome then, and I guess it went through a period where it was really stupid, but looking back on it, I guess it sounds pretty cool, so... However, you know, bathing in an industrial sink is that was not cool. I mean, it sounds all romantic, but uh, you know, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you guys were doing whatever it took to live out your dreams, you know? Exactly. And and we were playing at all the same clubs as uh, a bunch of different bands including Cheap Trick who were uh, you know, they were friends of ours and uh Play the same clubs, played on the same bill. You know, we were playing Milwaukee and Duluth and Madison, Wisconsin, and Janesville, of course, and the Red Lion down in Champaign, Illinois, and, you know, just all over the Midwest. And playing a mixture of uh, covers, you know, we'd, we'd cover Zeppelin, we'd cover, you know, Fleetwood Mac. You know, what we would do is we would always you know, you had to submit a set list to the club owners so they could see if it would be okay for their for the people who came into their bar. You know, they had a certain guidelines. You had to do a certain number of covers of, that were popular during the, that period. So we would put all, we would do all these songs by bands that they were familiar with so they could see those names. But we'd always pick the weird songs, you know, like <laughs> Fleetwood Mac. Oh, yeah, well, they're, you know, they're on the radio. But, of course, we were playing the old Fleetwood Mac stuff, you know, with Peter Green. Right. So on paper, we looked, we looked good. But uh, when we got there, <laughs> we were just a rock band. So what was the name of the band? Um, I, you know, I went through a lot of... A lot of different names. We were White Trash for a while. <laughs> then uh, Edgar Winter used the name, so we had to change it. So I think we changed it to Dream Fuck. <laughs> Man, that that was pretty pretty brave for the time. I think at this time it was Heartbreaker, which was kind of a tip of the hat to uh, Free, uh-huh. one of our big influences. We did a lot of Free and uh, Bad Company stuff. So, so uh, this time it was Heartbreaker. And you now you live in... Northwest Connecticut, but at this time you guys were based in just north of Chicago. And I'm a Chicago boy, so uh, I grew up there and uh, in a suburb of Chicago. Or uh, I grew up right in Chicago, and okay. uh, and then 
my parents moved to Evanston, which is the next town north of Chicago. Okay. And by this time, uh, actually, we'd moved out of the loft, and the band was rehearsing in our store. I'd moved all my gear into the vintage guitar store, which is in Wilmette, Illinois, and we would rehearse in the store and then work during the day, and then at night we'd either rehearse or we would play gigs. So that's, uh, that was in Wilmette, and that's just north of, of Chicago. Gotcha. The memory that I have was being at the store and you know working at the counter or something and looking out the front window, a big plate glass window, and an 18-wheel flatbed tractor-trailer pulls up in front of the store. And it's like one of those big flatbeds. And there's nothing on the flatbed except for a box, a cardboard box. It's about the size of a uh, speaker cabinet, you know, like a, you know, like a dual showman cabinet or something. And it's all strapped down with the canvas straps. And I'm like, well, okay, we're getting a shipment. That's kind of weird. There's only one thing on this <laughs> thing. And so I went out to, uh, to see what it was. But... So just kind of winding the clock back a couple of months, we were playing in this this gig in Janesville, Wisconsin. And I can't remember the name of the club, but it was just some dive. And, you know, you play three or four sets a night. And I think it was at the, the end of the second set, you know, we thank you very much, tip those waitresses, and, you know, we go to take our break. And at the time the guitarist in the band was using my 1960 Les Paul standard, mm -hmm. you know, a real burst. And uh, wow. for backup, he had his 70s Les Paul Deluxe, a Sunburst Deluxe, with, you know, what, the mini buckers, a real piece of shit. <laughs> and so this is in the 70s, so it's like a new Les Paul. This is around 74, you Yeah, it was one of those crappy, well, his guitar was one of those crappy mini bucker mm -hmm. guitars from the 70s, and the guitar that he was using of mine was a real 1960 right. Les Paul burst, Right. And which of course would be preferable, but he had his guitar as a backup. Right. And, uh, and I was using the Flying V bass. So we take our break, and then we come out to do our third set. And I look at the stand where my bass is or should be, and there's no bass. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I put, left it in the case. And I look in the case, which was like a giant flight case, which mm -hmm. was over by the side of the stage, and it wasn't there. And then I walk back over to the stand. And, you know, and this, and anybody out there who's listening who's ever had something major stolen from them they know this feeling it's like when like if your car's ever been stolen you know you go out to the parking space your car's not there you suddenly start questioning everything like wait did i park it somewhere else did i leave it what did i do exactly right and then you walk back to the space expecting the car to be there it's like well maybe if i go back it'll be there <laughs> and, and it's not and you keep walking around and with this question in your mind. And that was w what I was doing. I kept like, I'm looking around. Did I put it on the other, did I put it on Rick's side of the stage? And, and it's just spin, you know, spinning around in my head and I'm not really getting it. And then you start asking people like, did you, did you move my bass? Exactly. Club owner, stage manager. And they're like, no. And then. Right behind the stage, if you can imagine, it's one, like one of these low stages, about a foot high. It's just like a platform. Mm -hmm. And 
behind it, it's, it's pushed up against a railing behind the drums, mm-hmm. and there's a stairway behind the railing that goes down into the basement. And then people were going up and down, the people who worked there, to get the beer and bring it upstairs. And all the coolers were down there. You know, it's a typical, typical club bar scenario. And they're looking around, well, maybe it's downstairs. Maybe somebody took it down there. And then they found that there was a window that had been broken open. Oh, no. uh, you know, and, and somebody had grabbed the base, jumped over the railing, run down the stairs, and gone out through the window. <sighs> and so I was so freaking pissed off. It was just, I mean, I was livid. And the club owner's going, okay, well, come on. I got customers here. You got to play. Oh, no. Did you have a backup? No, I didn't have a backup base. Oh, God. Not, so not only are you furious about losing a one-of-a-kind base that you designed and built from the ground up, but you have nothing to perform with either. Exactly. So I used the backup Les Paul, the one with the, the mini buckers. I just <laughs> plugged it right into my, favorite one. my acoustic 370 <laughs> bass amp, like just cranked the mid-range and just played guitar. I play all the low chords for the song. And I was so mad. It was like probably one of the most crazy, angry performances people had <laughs> ever seen. I was so pissed. I was like kicking the monitor. It was like punk rock uh, Fleetwood Mac? A little punk rock, a little <laughs> Pete Townsend. And, uh, you know, I, I just was blind. And I, we had to do two sets like that. <sighs> And it was actually kind of fun. The guitar, I had, you know, the guitar was distorting like crazy. And, you know, the acoustic, that's like at so much low end. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a cool sound. I was kind of digging it in a weird way. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, I lost this this bass, one of, one of a kind bass. And on the way home, I'm, I'm already plotting to build a new one. You know, maybe I'm going to do an Explorer bass this time or you know, but it was it was really hurtful. Did you call the police or report it, or what did you do after that? To, did you even think there was any way to recover it, or were you just like, ah, oh, man, it's gone? I, you know, I, I don't really remember. I don't think I even filed a police report or called the cops or anything. It was uh, just wasn't in that kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd I'd had my apartment broken into. A couple times previously, and they had taken some stuff, like a 52 Les Paul. And oh, God. Actually, my EB-3 got stolen. Ah, jeez. How old were you at this time, anyway? Well, I would have been 22. Okay. Already a veteran. <laughs> Already a veteran. But, yeah, I can see, you know, the early 20s, a lot of times you're just like... Whatever. In the moment and just, like, furious and... Well, when I had this other stuff stolen out of my apartment, the police had proven themselves to be completely useless. <laughs> you know, I filled out the, the police reports, and, uh, and I knew who, who had broken into my apartment. I knew the guy. What? Really? Yeah. It's, you know, when you're, you're young, it's a small group of people. People know what you have. They break into your house, you know. And I, and I knew the guys who had done it, and I told the cops, and, like, nothing happened. Absolutely. I've never seen that. And uh, somewhere out there, there's a 52 Les Paul gold top with a big crescent moon dent from a school locker lock <laughs> right, on the, right on the upper bout of the guitar. School locker. Wow, that sounds like another story. But Yeah, yeah, that's... 
But but this the Flying V base though had a happy ending. Well, I got a phone call from a guy in a store, and I I, I wish I could remember. And if you're out there, you know, send me an email and remind me of who you are because I I owe you a huge debt of gratitude, if not the cost of the shipping. But uh, it was a store in the Janesville area. It was a music store. And some guy came into this, or this is the story I was told. Some guy came in with the bass and uh, wanted to sell it. So the guy behind the counter looked at it. And I guess the story had gotten around about this bass. So you couldn't miss it. Because back then, it was the only Flying V bass people had ever seen. So the guy walks in with this instantaneously identifiable instrument. Well, plus, you, you must have had a bit of a reputation at the time because you were running the shop. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he knew who, who I was. He knew about our shop and everything. He knew immediately what it was. And so the guy says, yeah, I want to sell this bass. And the guy picks it up guy behind the, the counter picks it up and says, oh, yeah, yeah, this looks pretty good. You know, I've got, I know a guy who probably would really like to buy this. Let me call him. And so he walks away from the counter to the telephone with the base, and it dawns on the guy who had stolen it that he was going to call the cops or call me or whatever. And so he runs out the front door, just leaves the base there and runs out. Oh, wow. Leaves it with the guy. So he calls and he, he says, hey, I think I've got your base. Uh, I want to send it back to you. So, he, you know, he got the, uh, got the address and boxed it up. And there it was on this flat bed. No way. <laughs> and I went out and I didn't know what it was. And, you know, just another shipment at Northern Prairie Music. So went out, signed the papers, got it opened it up, and there it was. You know, it, not in a case or anything, because mm -hmm. obviously there was no, you know, he didn't have any case that it would fit in, so he just kind of wrapped it up in bubble wrap or something. And that base came back. So you don't even know who sent it to you? I can't remember. I knew at the time, but, you know, it's, I'm old and feeble. <laughs> <laughs> I still had the case, and uh, I don't have the case anymore, that one of my partners at Hamer uh, decided it should go in the dumpster at some point. So. <laughs> wow, what a story. I still got the bass, and the thing rocks. It's just, it's a short scale bass and, you know, 30 and a half inch scale oh, wow. with just that wrap bridge. And you would think that it wouldn't work. You know, I was, I started on a P bass and then went to, you know, I had the Rickenbacker bass, and I always played long scale basses. You know, like a whole James Jamerson thing, and I just, it, I just lucked out. This thing is awesome. It's like the wings on it are like tuning fork wings or something. It's just got this growly, and I would play it with a pick. It's really, it really sounds better with a pick. It's not you can't play R and B on it, but when you play rock, and you get a little bit of growl going on the amplifier, this thing just kills. It's, I mean, I, I take it out and show it to people. I have it here. It's right here in my office. Oh, I gotta hear that thing. You said it had a path humbucker, guitar humbucker in the bridge or neck? In the, in the neck position. And then what was in the bridge again, the EB pickup? I had an EB3 pickup, which I then changed to a uh, Hofner pickup. Oh, okay. 
And did you use both pickups at the same time? Or Don't know. I think I used the bridge pickup mainly. I think the neck pickup was mainly just for show. Mm-hmm. And now it's got a real old DiMarzio in it. It's, uh, you know, at some point I took the PAF out and either put it in one of the early hammers or sold it. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what happened to it. But it was a real PAF that I had gotten out of the Gibson factory in Kalamazoo. So when you got the bass back, going back to that, it was in, it was all in good condition? Nothing happened to it? You know, it was beat up because I, you know, I would do all kinds of crazy stuff. I would like lean it on the monitor. And but it was beat up from you. Yeah. So, so if there were extra scrapes and scratches on it, I, I probably wouldn't have noticed. But it wasn't, wasn't like they broke anything or yeah. anything off of it. You know, he, he didn't have it for that long. Yeah. It's great. Every now and then I'll show it to somebody and I'll, I'll pull it out and it still has the same strings on it for the last 25 years or something. And it's, uh, it still sounds amazing. You know, not many people are lucky enough to get their instruments back, but when you do, it's a special thing. You know, it has that extra story. You know, I wish I could... I've I've asked the bass what happened and if he saw anything, you know. (laughs) Oh, man, that's awesome. And Yeah, anyone who gets their instrument back, that's amazing, but especially one that you built that's totally one of a kind and that... I'm sure it was turning heads everywhere you guys played, not just because it was a flying V, but because of how you were banging it around, too. It's been good to me. It certainly started out a whole career of building guitars, so uh, I I have it to thank. Awesome. All right, Joel, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Talk to you later. All right, later. Bye. Well, that about does it for today. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to check out more episodes on PremierGuitar.com, SoundCloud, and the iTunes Store. This is Sean Hammond for Conversations in the Key of Life, the Premier Guitar podcast that talks to you about your musical journeys. (laughs) 